the really good creatives will do those things, right? But it, and they go looking for the other inspiration, you know, because it is it's the blend of those two things. I used to actually like where um, in San Francisco, a lot of the agencies are in the financial district. But the cool thing about financial district is you go outside and there's people in suits who are trading stocks or whatever it is they do, <laughs> uh, right? You could also go, uh, you turn the last year in Chinatown, you go right, you're at North Beach, Italian neighborhood, you go straight down, there's the docks, there's a really wonderful gourmet section that's happening. So like, think of your idea, go for a walk, but go for a walk into a place that's gonna take you through it. Like in that, what you could, in an app, 45 minutes, you can weave through all of those and just let all of those things happen. Somehow you're gonna see something that's gonna unlock that new idea. But you gotta start with that idea. You gotta walk, you gotta, you gotta have the base and then let yourself be knocked off of it. Welcome to How I Made It in Marketing from Marketing Sherpa. We scour pitches from hundreds of creative leaders and uncover specific examples, not just trending ideas or buzzword-laden schmaltz, real-world examples to help you transform yourself as a marketer. Now, here's your host, the Senior Director of Content and Marketing at Marketing Sherpa, Daniel Burstein, to tell you about today's guest. I remember sitting next to someone in a conference, eating lunch, making small talk, and it came up that his brand has no competition. And I said, wow, what a dream position to be in. I was used to working with a competitive sales office, hyper-focused on differentiating from competitors, you know, us versus them. He said, no, 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 you got it all wrong. It's not a dream position. It's horrible. When you have competition, you know you're going to get into a set amount of RFPs or bake-offs. You're going to win a certain percentage of them. When you have competition, there's a line item in the budget to choose some vendor. You'll get a certain percentage of those. We need to start from ground zero and tell them why they should even care about this category. We really need to be creative. I remember that story when I was reading a recent podcast guest application, and this lesson really grabbed my eye. Creativity matters for a category of one. So now we're about to talk to someone in a similar position who's worked at a company that doesn't have competition. Here to share lessons behind that story, along with many more lesson-filled stories, is Gary Stein, the CMO of Virtuo. Thanks for joining us, Gary. Thank you for having me, Daniel. I'm really happy to be here. Now, of course, that's just your most recent company, your most recent lesson. Just cherry picking through your background so uh, people know who I'm talking to. You've been a senior analyst at Jupiter Research, an instructor at San Francisco State University, an SVP of strategy and planning and eye crossing. As I mentioned, for the past year, you've been CMO of Virtuo. Virtuo has raised $7 million in Canadian dollars to date. Uh, with the latest round led by ATB Private Equity and TELUS Ventures. And Gary manages a team of 10, including agencies. He manages them remotely. And he says they're a team that punch above their weight. So Gary, give us a sense. What is your day like as CMO? And, and how do you get your team to punch above your weight? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we don't do much punching. We do more uh, hugging <laughs> than punching. It's uh, <laughs> the way we like to go about it. But hug above your weight is weird. Um, okay, so... <laughs> So my day, um, yes, I, I am. Um, I'm actually a bit hybrid in terms of remote. I uh, split my time between San Francisco, California, uh, and Calgary, which is where the, the, the company is headquartered. So it doesn't matter where I am. Um, my day starts every morning here. If it's on the West Coast, it's 7:52 in Calgary Mountain Time. It's 8:52. We have an all hands eight minute meeting, um, which I am going to say if. They have any bits of advice to give, have an eight-minute meeting every morning. What we do is just do a quick roundtable 
of what's on the plate for the day. Um, and I go through a couple of initiatives. We look at a dashboard to just look at our key metrics. Um, and then we specifically read out a customer comment. So someone who uses our service, who has given us a comment, we read that out loud, at least one of them, maybe one or two. Um, and it just brings the customer, the human being on the other end of this into the room. And it does it every single morning. And I find it incredibly valuable. So we all share that moment. Then the next thing I do, um, I get a really strong, the strongest espresso I can find. <laughs> I gulp that down. And then usually do a review of a metric at some kind, dive into a dashboard. Um, sometimes it's very high level. We're looking at revenue or uh, prospects or things that are in our funnel. Or how many visits do we get to a website or an open rate? Pretty much the next thing is how are we doing? Um, uh, you know, of course, we're setting quarterly metrics and tracking them very closely. So looking at some bit of data, some some real thing that happens. And then after that, the startup. We're a, we're a startup with a lot of traction. We're a mid-sized startup. So it goes into, you know, pure chaos. <laughs> or sometimes I'm hopping in with the CEO and we're talking about... Um, you know, an event that we're doing or a campaign. I'm often on the phone with our agencies, briefing them, getting them thinking about our goals and where we want to go. Um, and then a lot of my day, and, and um, this might be my favorite part, is is making stuff. Uh, I, uh, I I tend to do a lot of writing. Um, you know, I, I I I love working closely. This is probably what's kept me in marketing and advertising. My career is working closely with creative people to get feedback and to give uh, direction and um, think about whether something exactly is on the brief. Um, and, you know, a lot of the copy that gets written, I have some hand just because I'm, I'm a better <laughs> writer than I am an artist. Uh, and then, uh, you know, somehow have like a check-in at the end of the day uh, with the team and uh, call it quits. And, you know, when we're in Canada, there's lots of hockey and beers and here in San Francisco, there's lots of hockey and baseball. Or sorry, uh, baseball, baseball and beers. The consistent thing is the beers. I like that. So, uh, so why why eight minutes? Why eight minutes? It sounds, it sounds uh, like you're getting a lot done in those eight minutes too. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know what? This predates me. I don't know if I ever asked that question. Why okay. it's eight minutes? It feels like it's just the right amount. You know, it kind of makes me think of. Uh, you know, when we all got excited about six second videos, which I think was seven seconds was fine. It was a seven second video, and I said uh, it's short enough that it that that that, it, that that there isn't very much of a commitment like it, you can watch seven seconds like who cares it's just like it's just seven seconds but it's long enough to tell the story and i think eight minutes is in that sweet spot like i'm not gonna skip an eight minute meeting <laughs> and i have enough time to tell a story okay perfect and i love how you read uh some direct customer feedback so i like how you yeah. said about making things right that is what this whole podcast is about well, i called it how i made it in marketing because we get to yeah. make things as marketers i've never been an actuary or podiatrist or anything else but i don't feel like they yeah. get to make things so uh, no. so let's look at your first lesson from making something i mentioned it in the open creativity matters for category of one so tell us uh why you're a category of one how you're a category of one in your company and how you've used creativity to communicate yeah no so i think we're a category of one you know I, and, and and I, I I like your story in the opening uh, about not having competition. I mean, there's companies that do things that are similar to us. But when I joined, and I've been full time with Virtuo for about a year, a third or so. But I've known the founders actually since they had just two dudes who had a bit of an idea, and I got to know them a couple of years back. And I've been an advisor all the way through, and that was my first call, question. I was like, well, who, who else is doing this? And not really anybody. 
So that puts us into this category of one because it's not like someone is out there looking specifically for our service. And and just to give you a quick sense of what it is that we do, we help people move into their new homes. And, And there's a much bigger story than that. But you buy a home, you're extremely excited, and then you do the worst thing in the whole world, which is move all your stuff from one place to another get you utilities and insurance and all kinds of things. We just help all, all of that with an app and a concierge team um, and just make it go super smoothly. So that's a bit of a new thing. And people don't necessarily know that they're doing that. And we sell to companies that... Uh, a bunch of different kinds of companies, but companies that build houses and build communities is, is kind of a primary customer for us. Okay. So we solve a really strong problem, which is that moving is terrible. And people have described it as the worst part about my the new home, the worst part of the best experience. We solve that problem. The companies that we're selling to, they don't necessarily think about that, although they're aware of that problem. And they may not necessarily know that there's a solution for it. However, what they are clearly aware of, acutely, strongly driven by, is they got to provide a great customer experience. Uh, this is, uh, and you think about people who are buying homes right now, this is the generation that the partner on Tinder and had their lunch delivered by DoorDash and uh, are, are a little bit frustrated that their Uber is two minutes late, <laughs> right? Like that, that's and they're bringing all of that. Salesforce has a really wonderful statistic that tells you that the expectations set in one category get carried over to another category. They show up to buy a home with that same mindset. So what we have to do, if we went out there and did a pitch and we said, hey, we're a move concierge service or we're a home concierge service, it's not clear that everybody's like, well, I'm looking, am I, I don't know, I'm looking for that. I don't know about it all. Budget line item. Like, so we got to find a way to make a connection around that. And so this is the, the story that we talked about. And this is something that I picked up through my years is um, let's position what we're doing associated with what they already care about. But because we're not exactly the answer, it's not like I, you know, I need two by fours and I give you two by fours. We got to compellingly communicate that. So we got to put a creative wrapper around that message because the first thing we have to do with someone, and, and I think this is category of one or category of a hundred, you got to get people engaged and you got to, you got to get them a little bit uncomfortable <laughs> with what they're doing right now. Like, you know, maybe my shoes are not, I can't run fast enough in my shoes. It's going to be a little bit of discomfort that people want to go after. They want to solve. And so what we were able to do is make people a little uncomfortable. I say uncomfortable. I don't mean that in a bad way. I don't mean, I don't want to cause pain. I don't want to you know, make stress or something like that. Just like, you know, I could be better. And so how do we say that? We wrap that in a creative package. Um, and then people are attracted by the creativity. <laughs> and then they get to the rest of the message. Uh, so, so that creative wrapper, always remembering to do that, especially if we're in a category of one, but I think no matter what. And so you mentioned that you used uh, AI to help design the images for the campaigns. And I wonder if you learned anything from using AI to do that. And I asked partly because yeah. what you're talking about reminds me a lot of the Hollywood pitch, right? When there's a new movie coming out, when they're pitching that movie, totally. it's like, Oh, it's like that thing you know and like Star Wars, <laughs> but yeah. it's in the medieval <laughs> times or whatever it is, right? Totally it's like right. taking exactly. something you know that was successful. <laughs> and so hearing you say that, that's kind of how AI works in some way. Some of the generative AI or design AI is saying, hey, I want something like this, but yeah. do it here. And the AI has something to relate to. So tell us a yeah. bit about using the AI to design those images and how it took and how it like kind of tapped into what you were looking to tap into, but brought something new as well. 
Yeah, this is uh, this is when we you know punch slash hug above our wing. Uh, I'll give a shout out to the agency <laughs> work with agency SOS. They're uh, excellent. Um, so the way the idea how do we how do we make people quote unquote uncomfortable? You know, not not in pain or stress, but uncomfortable um, was uh, what we offer as a part of a modern experience, right? You know, sort of like we said with Uber or Salesforce, or whatever it might be, it's a modern way of doing business. So rather than say be modern, what we decided to say was don't get stuck in the past. And that was the compelling line of the message that pulled all the way through. And so how do you communicate to a builder that they shouldn't get stuck in the past? Well, we look at how they used to design homes. And so we created a series of images of interiors that were very clearly dated. So think of kitchens with avocado colored cabinets and living rooms with lots of paneling and fake rock and discussion pits, <laughs> uh, you know, bedrooms that are in these sort of 1980s color schemes, uh, sea foam, right? You know, there's a lot of sea foam in, in our childhood. Um, so what we first, we were like, oh, that's so great because these images are so compelling and they're also sort of cool looking and they're fun to look at, but they're really clearly dated. And so we couldn't find any of those images. Um, the agency we work with had an art director, a really talented art director, create the prompts. And honestly, I don't know what the prompts were that went into how much or what platform it was that they used, um, but they were clearly well-crafted. And we even actually were messing around. We tried to do it ourselves and they did not come back as well. So what we were able to do, what, what the art director was able to do was to put, first of all, our brand colors in certain key aspects, certain key lighting. Because we, we you know, there are pictures of kitchens from the 1970s that exist out there on the internet, but they're taken yesterday and, and everything looks kind of grungy and terrible. We didn't want that. We wanted it to be cool looking. So we got like 40 images. They were extraordinary. And so then we were able to create an ad that said, you don't, your kitchens don't look like this. And again, targeted at these builders, your kitchens don't look like this anymore. How about your customer experience? How about the modern experience? And then we get to chance to make that pitch. So the creative idea, so the, 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 the desire to make people feel a little bit uncomfortable, uh, wrapping it in a creative idea. And also the kitchen, like these images are fun to look at. And, they, and, and we all sort of love them. And it could be a little bit quirky and, and it had like a disco soundtrack behind it. The humor and the creativity and the fun and the richness of it, it just became compelling to look at. And, and I will say, once we get on that idea, like let's all put it in the past, then we just, you just keep on going, right? You know, a good creative idea, it, it, it's not, it, it, it's meant to be a platform. So um, yeah, we did the interiors. Uh, we did a conference where we created our booth, looked like it was a den from the 1970s with shag carpet and really ugly couches. Um, I went on eBay and I bought a bunch of good housekeeping magazines from the 1970s and we put our brand on it and scattered them all over the place. Uh, and then this is probably the best thing is that this conference in particular, there was, it's, it's put on by a particular influential leader in, in our industry. Um, and, <laughs> you know, I looked at him and I said, well, he's kind of of a certain age. And I was actually able to connect with his son who gave me his graduation pictures from like 1975. And so I blew up his graduation picture and had it all over the place. And he's had it had. And, uh, you know, the, the line that we used with, you know, it was a picture of him, right? It was pretty noticeable. And it was, uh, we did it like a mean style. We said, uh, you know, sparking motivation since the Carter administration. <laughs> and just, it's just like, once you've made that twist, just keep on going. And, and that's what the creative platform allowed us to do. Wow, that is daring. Did he did he appreciate it or was he like, what? 
He loved it. And actually, I have a really great photo of him at the event holding up a frame picture, like a big blown up frame, gold frame picture of him just looking at going like, you know, with the quirky. He's got a great sense of humor and a, and a great, you know, he was willing to. That's the other thing. You have a really good creative idea. It's surprising how many other people want to play along with you that just amplify the idea. Yeah. Well, that, you know, back in my MC days, we'd call that legs, right? Well, that's an idea that has legs, right? Is it just a one off or does it have legs? And that's a great totally. example of all the different extensions you were able to take with. So that was an example. You had to be creative because, as you said, you're a category of one. People don't know this thing. But just in general, this is the type of thing we do as marketers. You, another lesson you have here is tell a compelling story that demonstrates the product. So how have you yeah. been able to demonstrate the product before? Yeah, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely a, a bit of a, a classics, like an old school, you know, an old used to talk about this or Bill Bernbach, right? You know, it's like, Find some way, find something that's different about the product and then compellingly communicate that. And, and you know, it's, there's a million examples all the way through that. Sometimes I think we get a little bit lost. Sometimes there's a compelling idea, but there isn't like a, doesn't connect back to the product. You know, there's lots of different ways it goes wrong. So there's, there's two examples. And again, this is before Virtuo. Um, when I was uh, on the agency side, I was at an agency called Eleven for a long stretch. Um, and one of the products, or one of the brands we had was Google Cloud. So, so Google Cloud, distinct from Google, uh, you know, it's the it's the competitor to uh, AWS and web services business product. Um, and this was a few years back, uh, making sure that people understood, uh, enterprises understood that the cloud is not just a place to store your data. You can actually do significantly. Uh, uh, advanced analytics on that data that can help drive your business. So it's a new idea uh, or, or an evolved idea that we wanted to communicate uh, about your ability to um, do more with your data. And um, Chad Lights, who was the creative director at the time, um, he wrote the line, know what your data knows, which I just loved, right? You know, businesses create billions of terabytes of whatever of data, there's truth that's inside of there, but you don't know what it is. Your data knows what it is. Okay. So what we did with them with Google cloud, uh, and this is probably the most complicated thing I've ever done is we, uh, it was a partnership between Google and the NCAA. And during the final four, um, the you know basketball tournament, obviously the March Madness, um, during the final four, during both of the games, we ingested Google Cloud, the data scientists of Google Cloud ingested something like 60 years worth of basketball data, you know, games from NCAA uh, games, and then captured data from the first half. During halftime, we generated a prediction about what was going to happen on the second half, built an ad out of that, and aired that ad right before the second half started. And we did that on both Final Four games and then on the, um, on the, the national championship like on the Monday after that. And it was an extraordinarily complicated. It was so well timed and so well executed. And ultimately, what we were doing is we were communicating that you can, it's that idea. It doesn't just store your data. You can actually perform analytics and make a prediction about what's going to happen in the future. And by the way, our predictions about what was going to happen in the second half all happened. They were all totally dead on and right. Um, so rather than just tell people that, we show we 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 turned the camera around and showed us doing it, showed the product doing it, and made it more fun. And even kind of put some we took on some risk, right? You know, it's possible uh, uh, that what we said and broadcast on national television wasn't going to happen. We didn't know, 
but we went ahead and broadcast it. And then it gave us this follow-up moment where we were able to say, hey, look, it happened. See, use Google Cloud. Uh, and, and again, it's like, that's a really compelling story. And it's on a high wire act. And yeah, people like watching high wire acts, right? And, and so put yourself up on that high wire, do something remarkable, but make sure that it shows this thing that you, like at the end of it, it's like, I, I, I'm okay if they forget that we did it on the final four and they forget what the prediction actually was. As long as they remember, it's like, oh my God, they were able to use the technology that like the product feature comes along with that story. So how did you do that though? So, you know, those are one of the ideas that, that it sounds good in theory, but if I was at the agency with you, It'd be like, yeah. we, we have like 10 minutes to produce a national spot. Like how, how does it even work? That's the thing with agency people. There's a lot of good ideas, but actually executing and making them happen. Yeah. Uh, I will tell you that uh, it was in San Antonio that year. Um, and outside of the stadium was a, a, a semi trailer, you know, like a, like what our 18 wheeler, but inside was a studio. And inside of that studio was a team of, creatives and data scientists and brand people and legal people uh, and yeah. network people and um, a significant amount of technology. Uh, and uh, I'll tell you the way that we did it. Did you ever see uh, the founder uh, that, that show or the movie about McDonald's about the guy who, who didn't start McDonald's, but kind of made it big. I know the movie you're talking about. I haven't seen it though. Yeah. Okay. You guys see this movie. I also, I also, like, we should pause the podcast and watch that movie. It's such a good <laughs> movie, right? One of the things that, they show that before they open the first McDonald's, or they, the whole thing is they franchise it. The first big McDonald's is they go to a parking lot and they tape out the the because the, it's like we have to turn good quality food quickly. They tape out all of the stations and they practice and they practice and they practice and they practice. So the cool thing about that tournament is that it goes on for like a month before the final four. We practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced. And then when we were sick of practicing, we practiced 16 more times and we made everything just right. And the thing that it was most like, I got to say, it was like, uh, you know, you watch like a NASA documentary and they're all in the control room. It was like that. And it was down to the way in which somebody said something was planned. And that person had to say that in that exact way. Otherwise, we would not take the next step forward. So we can't just, there's no ad living. It's, Practice, 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 discipline all the way through. And, and, and this is another thing, actually. I didn't talk about it. Um, Courtney Gucher, who was the uh, head of Eleven, used to talk about take big risks that you know are safe. It looks to everybody else like we're on a high wire act. We've done it so many times that we're like, we're dialed in on that one. So, so it just, you know, taking risks is a, is a good thing. So <laughs> it was uh, a significant amount of coordination from a lot of very talented people. And, and adrenaline, I would think, you know, working late at night to get that pitch ready for the next day is one thing, but doing it in real time, I, adrenaline must have been through the roof for you. Through the roof. It was, <laughs> it was, it was extraordinary. All right. Here's another example. I like, as I said, tell a compelling story that demonstrates the product. So if you've got yeah. a physical good, here's a great example for a physical good. Tell us what you did for Pella. Yeah. So Pella, that was really, uh, this is another interesting sports story. So maybe there's some, you know, abilities on sports that are there. Um, <laughs> Pella is a window, is a window manufacturer. Um, and they, uh, they make beautiful windows in, in lots of different, and one of the things that they're able to, they, they do a significant amount of engineering on windows, right? We just think about a window as a window, but there's a lot that goes into it. Um, they also are able to put that engineering into a lot of styles, which is important if you've got a traditional house, right? And, you know, a Victorian or a colonial and 
you know, you want moderate windows, but you want to match a particular style. So again, that's an idea. And, and, and it's, it, 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 it's especially important to the Midwest where there are hurricanes, um, because, um, the, the problem there are hurricanes in the hurricane. Midwest. Go figure, right? Aren't there? <laughs> okay. No, maybe not hurricanes, tornadoes. Sorry, tornadoes. Oh, okay, in the okay, US. Gotcha, hurricanes, I gotcha. Hurricanes where you are. High okay. winds. <laughs> there you go. I'm High like, winds. Okay. I'm in California. It's sunny and beautiful. 364 <laughs> days a you year. You guys have weather, yeah. <laughs> we just yeah. have earthquakes, right? But anyway, uh, so high winds, right? So the problem with high winds, of course, in windows, uh, is if your window shatters, like if a rock or something will go through your window, if there's high winds, your roof will rip off, right? Because the vacuum is, you know, broken in it. And so it's incredibly important to have strong windows, windows that can withstand shots, like, uh, like sudden impacts, right? Uh, and you don't want it to look like it's some industrial, you know, it's because it's your home and it's beautiful. And most of the time you want it to just look aesthetic. So windows that can extend, withstand high impact and also look great. We want to communicate those two things. You could certainly put that in the headline and you can, you know, there's, there's lots of clever ways that we can do that. One of the things we did is try to think about where are windows surprisingly affected by sudden impacts and, and, uh, the Cubs Stadium. Is that Wrigley Field? That's Wrigley Field, right? Wrigley Field, yeah. Doesn't sound like yeah, okay. Um, yeah, right. Wrigley Field. <clears throat> Over the left field wall is an apartment complex because Wrigley is the only, well, I don't know if it's the only, but it is a it is a a stadium that is built in a neighborhood. And people, in fact, live there and their windows face the stadium. And more than once, a home run has gone over the left field wall and shattered a window. Right? So our pitch to Pella, and they loved this idea, and we went for it, and this was amazing, is let's replace, let's design a home run proof window, replace all of the windows on that apartment building with Pella windows, and make sure that no ball could ever shatter it. So they went for it. They actually designed a window, and there's a really great engineering video of showing, you know, the impact of a baseball. We replaced all of the windows. Um, we put a, a promotion. If, if a ball ever bounced off of a window, we would donate some charity. Every time there was a home run, the whole place would light up with Pella. And then we did a batting practice where there was an attempt to hit the window. And again, we're trying to say, what we want to make sure people remember is that, and, and it's, a, it's a historic building, so you can't just replace it with any window. You got to keep the historic look. Kept the historic look massively upgraded them to be to be to be uh resistant to home runs and by the way this will also help if you're in a hurricane or a tornado you know I, what i love about those stories is our uh, founder flint mclaughlin has this great quote don't make claims let people make their own conclusions lead people to conclusions right because that's something we like to totally. do as marketers yeah you could have said these are great windows <laughs> you know big ad oh, fantastic yeah. windows yeah but you let people come to their own conclusions they can see for themselves the other thing like you mentioned it just happens to be sports i do think sports is one of those opportunities in our modern day where you, it's not scripted you don't know what's going to happen i mean scripted. unless you think it's rigged right it's <laughs> not you know it's the, every other entertainment you know, type of thing out there. It's very scripted. You know, it's going to happen. And so that is a great chance to say, Hey, watch what happens live. Like, let's see what happens here. Let's see, let's see how this goes oh. down. So. Oh, totally. Yeah. No, I mean, we, we, we want to leverage these things in culture. Right. And there's a well-established theory that the reason why we like sports is that it provides spontaneity in our lives. Right. We're, you know, I, I was, I was, I, was, I don't know when this is going to air, but I was pretty sure the 
Fortnite Irish is going to win the, <laughs> the, the divisional play, the game, but I didn't know for sure. And it was an edge of your seat. That's a thrilling moment, right? Whereas if I watch, you know, whatever, like I said, Star Wars meets Richard III, <laughs> you know, whatever new Hollywood movie, I know that that's scripted. So it provides those moments of spontaneity. So we'll lean in on those moments. Like we don't know what's going to happen. Let's let's raise our stakes a little bit, and and yeah, sports definitely is a is a good way for us to do that. Is a way for marketers to do it. Absolutely. Hey, when the Jags were the number one seed in the AFC, I was pretty sure they would make the playoffs, and then they didn't. So you never <laughs> know what's going to happen until they don't. Totally. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Uh, and that's a great example, actually, because I think when the Jags were the number one seed in the AFC, I think there was a 97% chance or something that they would make the playoffs, which brings us to the term of uh, data. You say, get your data, data sorted, sorted. <laughs> right? Data can make <laughs> predictions. Yeah, in the previous example, you're talking about Google Cloud that's very public. But a lot of these things that happen in agencies, they happen behind the scenes. So to make these yeah. uh, insights, get these good insights, a lot of things have to happen behind those behind the scenes. And one of them is, as you say, getting your data sorted. So I think you had a challenge at an agency where it was taking far too long to get analytics, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I, and I think that this is a compelling problem. And, and to be honest with you, I think this is one of the things like when we think about advertising and the future of advertising or what's holding advertising back, data is really an important one. Uh, and I think the more that agencies and, and marketers in general are comfortable with data and focus on it, the better. But I think advertising has a very specific data problem. And, and, and maybe this is true in, in other industries, but the, the agents the industry I particularly know, which is we create these integrated campaigns because there's a consumer journey and saying like, well, they're going to see the billboard and then they're going to go online and then they're going to listen to the radio and the, and the TV. And all of those channels are doing a job. You know, the Procter & Gamble thing, everything has a job to do. They all come together to create preference or desire or interest or whatever it might be. It's, it's on paper, the strategy is integrated. And then also the creative is integrated as well, meaning each one of those pieces does the particular thing. Then it goes into the world and we play something on television and on YouTube and on, on Instagram and wherever else. And all of those platforms report data back totally differently. And they're all, we may take the same piece of creative, the same 30 second spot and put it on three different platforms. They're all measuring impressions and they're all measuring completed views. However, they're reporting them differently. And, you know, an integrated plan might have 60, 70 channels on it. Uh, and, and each one could have 100 data points. Suddenly, we go from our very clear, customer-centric, empathetic, driven strategy that's totally integrated to a scattered mess. Getting focused on pulling that back together into some sort of a cohesive view is critical. And yeah, you know, we were saying, and, uh, you, you'll have to forgive me for not naming names on this one in particular, but we had a very complicated, or very, uh, sorry, not complicated, very complex media plan. And it was taking the same amount of time to generate results from that campaign in, in the modern age as it took for a letter to make its way from Missouri to Sacramento on the Pony Express. That's like three weeks. And I'm like, that's not okay. We can't allow that to occur because, um, first of all, either we're wasting money because we're spending on something that's not working or we're missing an opportunity. I mean, there's a chance that we just nailed it. It's all right. We've got to get more nimble with that data. And uh, there's two choices. Either you just put everything on YouTube and you're just cool. Like, that's all we're going to do. Um, 
or you find a way to organize that data on the on the back end of it. And so there's a there's a handful of we, you know, a handful of companies that'll help you do that from the technology perspective. It's really a service uh, service um, offering, and I think even the most creative driven agencies can benefit massively from recognizing that in order for us to be consumer centric and always being focused on delivering to the customer and an integrated plan that uses every channel, you got to invest in that backend data and getting data sorted is something that is going to continually be a challenge. Um, It's going to hold advertising back. You just can't be as nimble and and you can't be as, can't be as bold unless you have the data under control. You know how well, how well things are working. Yeah, I mean, first of all, the Pony Express is a great example of uh, telling a compelling story to move something, even internally, so I like that. But I don't want to get too deep here, but give us a sense of what did you do to ensure there was a consistent process for both timely delivery and reliable data interpretation? So, for example, for us, we've shared a free data pattern analysis tool before, right, to help bring that consistency. So, Mm Because at the end of the day, what you want to do with data is you want to find a meaningful pattern. That's the whole point of the data, right? You want to just give us a high level, like, how did you make sure that, you know, you reduced the fragmentation, the inefficiency? Like, is there something we can learn from there? Yeah, um, probably the most most important thing is to develop a data strategy. Start with a data strategy. It's something that I don't know that a lot of media agencies are doing. Some some media agencies are better at it than others. Um, But a data strategy, a data strategy says, this is the data we need to gather, and this is the way in which we're going to gather it. And it's incredibly important if you are using multiple, you know, sort of on the client side, if there are multiple agencies, like, for example, if you've got a broadcast as well as a... um, digital, as well as maybe a demand gen or possibly influencer social, making sure that they all adhere to a data strategy that can be just as simple to begin with as a naming convention. It's shocking how <laughs> naming conventions are not always paid attention to and the, the value that they can generate, you know, just in terms of um, making sure that even like, the, like, like I said, there might be one piece of creative that's placed by three different agencies, making sure they all call that creative the same thing, small thing, but it's a huge element for it, right? Um, the, 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 um, oh, and then, then coming up with some definitions. So, for example, different platforms will, will call completed videos, at, they'll call it a completed video, a, a full view at a different point. Someone may say, oh, 70% is a completed view. Others might say 80% is a completed view. You need to correct for those discrepancies so that you have some clarity uh, along the lines. Then the other thing is you have to invest in some sort of a platform um, that's going to gather that data and clean it. You know, these are usually called ETLs, extract, transform, load technologies that'll go into each one of these platforms and pull it all together, correct it in the way that it makes sense. And then this is lesson I learned doing that final four project. It shouldn't sit on someone's hard drive. It needs to go up into yeah. a cloud. It has to go to Google Cloud, you know, put it in a query or in AWS or Snowflake or wherever it might be. And then once it's there, like once the data is clean and it's there, you can start hiring people who know how to write machine learning or artificial intelligence. You know, I mean, uh, uh, there there are well low code, <laughs> right? It always makes up. And again, this is beyond my technical ability, but I just know that there's a, you can then go to someone who knows how to write a machine learning algorithm and say, can you run it on this data set? And then that data set is available. And then you don't just say, you know, analytics is, is good when it tells you what happened. It's amazing when it can tell you what you're allowed to do. 
getting to that what you're allowed to do is only available if your data's set and sorted um, and you're able to run some analysis on it. Then again, right. the whole point of this, agencies want to be bold. Agent advertising, it's high, it's, it's high wire acts, but there has to be high, high wire acts that you feel confident about. Analytics can help you be bold. Well, and I think the other thing it can do is help you serve a customer, right? So the, we started well, this yeah. episode. Well, no, Ferris, we started this episode where you said, hey, in our eight-minute meeting, we yeah. only have eight minutes. And in that eight minutes, we read one or two things from the customer. That's a quarter of your meeting right there. So if you're For talking sure. about like trying to stay focused on the customer, I mean, that to me is one of the most exciting things about data. Let's actually put stuff out into the world, see how it works, learn from customers, and keep doing better, right? For sure, right? And you know, you think about the the wonderful creative people that we get to work with. Um, you know, and and I think you came up as a copywriter, right? I mean, you yep. wanted to yep. you wanted to tell funnier jokes or or more emotional line, like whatever that might be. If I don't know anything about the effectiveness of those, I'm gonna have to say you had to just be run of the mill, just be be, be be mediocre. But if I can say you could, and I say like, hey, tell a tell a little bit of a funnier joke. Let's let's push it a little bit. And if I have the data to have it come back, and let's say it works, <laughs> right? I can go back to you and say, be funnier, be funnier, be funnier, be funnier until it stops. And it's the biggest idea possible as opposed to what do we think is going to work. We're always seeking the biggest idea possible. And, and analytics allows us to do that. And the feedback loop means we can iterate and iterate and iterate. And when I finally find what the funniest idea, the biggest idea possible, the funniest joke we possibly tell... As a business leader, I would feel more comfortable comfortable saying, "Cool, let's do the Super Bowl spot on that. Let's buy the bill. Let's spend the money. You know, let's hire the actor, like whatever it might be." Because my confidence has been raised, and you don't have to, or you creative don't have to stay safe, and you don't have to take a massive risk right away. We're going to iterate ourselves up to the highest, and this is a. Uh, shout out to my boss, Casey, who's the CEO of Virtuo. He, he told me, and this is part of the reason why I took the job. He goes, our marketing or all of our advertising is either going to make people laugh or make them cry. And I'm like, I'm in. Let, let's do that. Uh, but I'm not going to guess what's going to make them laugh or cry right off the bat. I'm going to iterate. I'm going to work my way towards that. Right. Well, so those are some stories from Gary that we learned about some of the things that he has made, whether they were public facing or like a data strategy that were behind the scenes. But another great thing is we get to make things with people. As he said, creative people, we get to collaborate. In just a moment, we're going to hear some of the lessons Gary learned from people he collaborated with. But first, I should mention that the How I Made It in Marketing podcast is underwritten by MechLabs Institute, the parent organization of Marketing Sherpa. You can get 10,000 marketing experiments working for you with a free trial of the MechLabs AI Guild at mechlabs.com slash AI. That's M-E-C-L-A-B-S dot com slash A-I to get artificial intelligence working for you. All right, Gary, the first person that yeah. you bring up is Paul Kent, the founder of Mactivity. And you said from Paul, you learned, boys ask, what can we do with this? What do you mean by that? Yeah. Well, okay, so <laughs> I joined Mactivity. It was a small company. There was like six of us in an attic in Los Gatos, California. Um, and I was right out of college. And, um, you know, I, I like to say I, I didn't have imposter syndrome. I was just an imposter. I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> it was totally clear to everybody. Um, but I was constantly, I was like, okay, I'm going to figure this out, right? I was just like reading all the time. I was reading like industry articles and business publications and just trying to get myself. And I, 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 
got a master's degree in literature. I was not an MBA or anything like that. So I had a lot of catching up to do. And so I was constantly filling my head with all of this information. And I, I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, I, I know about this stuff. And I would talk to Paul, who's still a really close friend of mine. Um, and he would always ask me, it's like, okay, what can we do with that? And, and I just really love that because, and, and now I'm reminded of it a lot as I'm in more of a, you know, a startup and again, we're a mid-sized startup. Um, listen, but that world of just like, what can we do with this? How is this going to help us? And, and sometimes the answer is it just won't, which is just a thing that we know. But maybe it's like, oh, there's somebody who agrees with us. We should reach out and try to do something with them. Or can I provide some advice? Or is this a sales opportunity? Or is this a chance for us to say, we're not bad, we're this. And so always kind of put it through that filter where it's not just enough to know, but you have to always put that lens on it. You always have to ask that question and say like, how does this help us? And, and the cool thing about that is like the only way that that works is if you have a good sense of the mission of the company. And so the flip side of that is like, make sure everybody knows what we're trying to achieve. And, and, and I, I try to communicate that as much as possible so that everybody can like come along and just be like, oh, not only is that an interesting thing, but how does that help us? And, and, and I just really love that men, men, mentality, that, that mindset. Um, of it, It's a very much a growth mindset. So th- this is one I wanted to, to quibble with a bit. Yeah, and I'll tell okay, you, I'll good. tell you my thoughts, and you can you can push back, especially as a guy who's been a writer, who's worked at an agency. Uh, I, I I see where you're coming from, but I think this is sometimes our weakness because I know, for example, it. when you go into an industry, when I was, for example, I was new into the software industry. I read eWeek magazine. I tried to read everything about that industry, and yes, I tried to have that hyper focus on okay, now how can I use that these software companies I'm working with? But I think we overlook then the true creativity because I think what true creativity comes from is making these disparate connections that don't necessarily make sense on the face of them. So one thing that I like to do, I also am a big reader. I read, I like print. I like newspapers. I like magazines. I read a lot of this stuff. And I'm not always looking for that direct connection. I don't understand how this works. It goes into the brain. And three weeks later, it comes out as some wacky, totally disparate idea. Yeah. And I think sometimes that the only, the only thing I'm cautious about when you say that, I think, I think there's probably some good points in that. You want to know your industry well. You want to make those connections. But sometimes we get too myopic. And we only focus on that industry. And we only focus on that immediate. Okay, here's this. I'm you know, in the you know, home construction uh, industry. I'm focused on technology. Here's this. How do we use it right now? Versus let me get a wide array of knowledge. What's going on? What happened in history? What's going on in society? All these things. And then somehow that creative process down the road, I come up with something. So what, what do you think of that? Is that a fair pushback or my way off base here? No, you're wrong. Okay. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> uh, well, you know, I, I think yes, and I'm going to yes, and you know, if that's if that, okay. is that a fair thing to do. We'll like, do the we're improv. Doing improv, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, um, I think it's important to start from a base and then let yourself go anywhere. What I think where, where things tend to get a little bit confused, and I agree, sometimes there's a really good definition of creativity, which is two disparate ideas mashed together, right? You know, like so Star Wars and love story or whatever it might be like those two things mashed together, create something brand new. Um, what I think, and, and I, I think this is one of the things like, Oh, the old rules don't apply. It's often said by people who have no idea what the old rules are. They just <laughs> want to make a change and they want to say, Oh, you know, the home industry should, we should market it like the, like the fashion industry or something like that. Right. I think if you don't know the home industry, you're at a disadvantage when you go looking for those other inspirations to come in. Um, you know, this is, again, I'll go back to um, Eleven and, and Courtney who ran that uh, shop and did it so well. We had Virgin America, which, you know, the, the airline, which, you know, unfortunately isn't around anymore. 
But one of the core insights, and, and it wasn't mine, um, I'm giving full credit there, is marketing the airline the way, as though we're an entertainment brand. That was a really good insight that sparked a, a, a line of creativity that, that lasted many, many years and, and really differentiated that brand. The only way that worked is because there was a clear understanding of the airline industry and how the airline industry worked in order to take it a new direction. And so there's never anything wrong with filling lots of different things. The problems, I think, is if you just say, okay, well, now I know how to do this. I'm going to do this thing in the right way. You'll do it in the right way, but there won't be anything breakthrough. Just saying, I'm going to take all of this stuff and something else, I'm going to mash it together. If, if, if that, that can spark something new, the best case scenario is when you have a really solid understanding. And this is when we're really impressed by people who, who get it. And they almost like, it seems like they, they know it. They know they know it. They forget it. And they create something new. <laughs> like that's the true mastery. And, and I think that the really good creatives will do those things, right? But, and, and they go looking for the other inspiration, you know, because it it's the blend of those two things. I used to actually, like we're um, in San Francisco, a lot of the agencies are in the financial district. But the cool thing about the financial district is you go outside and there's people in suits who are trading stocks or whatever it is they do, <laughs> uh, right? You could also go, uh, you turn left and you're in Chinatown, you go right, you're in North Beach, which is the Italian neighborhood, you go straight down, there's the docks, there's a really wonderful gourmet section that's happening. So like, think of your idea, go for a walk, but go for a walk into a place that's going to take you through it. Like in that, what you could, in an app, 45 minutes, you could weave through all of those and just let all of those things happen. And somehow you're going to see something that's going to unlock that new idea. But you got to start with that idea. You got to walk. You got to have the base, and then let yourself be knocked off of it. Yeah, like well, I, the Picasso quote. I'm sure I'm gonna gonna really mess it up, but something like learn like a student, break like a master, or something like that. Like learn the rules like a student, break them like a master, or something like that. Yeah. Well, that's great. Yeah, you know, Picasso could could paint a you know could paint like Michelangelo, <laughs> but he painted like Picasso. <laughs> right. Right. Here's another one. Uh, lesson we have is every click is a wish via Joel Hladcheck. Chief Creative Officer at Red Sky. What do you mean by that? Every click is a wish. Yeah, you know, so when I was working at Red Sky, it was very much like the beginning of interactive, you know, so we were trying to figure interactive out, you know, interactive meaning, all, you know, webs and websites and, and banners and all kinds of interesting things. Joel really had this, he had, he had a really wonderful way about him that humanized and simplified. And that was one of his mantras. So, you know, I, it, it, it's like click it, it, it still work and it worked then it still works now but I think it just was a simple reminder that when someone takes an action you create something this is how, how I made it right you make something but it doesn't it's it, you make something for someone and they take an action whether it's to read your book or visit your site or walk in your store it's not pure arbitrary action that's happening, they want something to occur. And, 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 you know, we can say, well, what's the value proposition? What's the response? All sorts of things. We say every click is a wish. When someone clicks on a banner, which would, you know, kind of the beginning, I think of that quote, it's, it's, it's like they, they are wishing for something to return. They're, they're, it, it, there's value in what they're looking for. Right. Even if this is download a coupon, right. There's just like, it, and, it, and it just, it, it says, you know, that word wish, most often we hear it in, you know, fairy tales and Disney. It's a, it's a magic word, right? It compels us to deliver magic. 
not just a response, but magic. And, uh, and, and, and that framing always elevates the execution. And so every click is a wish as opposed to every click is a desire or a, a need or something, or, you know, wanting to satisfy. Wishes are special and everybody has wishes. And uh, when we think about it as a wish, and I think about it a lot with homes now, you know, people are not building, not, they're not buying buildings with bathrooms and bedrooms. They're building a place to read their kids a book as they fall asleep. That's the wish. And it just really reminds us that we have the opportunity. Maybe it's not the responsibility, but it's the opportunity to deliver something magic. Yeah. And so how do we then on the front end properly set up the communication of what they could possibly get so they know they can make that wish or they want to make that wish? Because th this is where I see a lot of websites fall or a lot of campaigns fall. Something as simple as a button that says submit or, you know, we forget that that is, it's a, it's a wish. It's also a little risky. Like, you know, what's going to happen on the other side of this. And I think really good marketing sets it up well of like, okay, here's the clear thing. You will take this action and then you will get this thing. Hopefully. And then poor marketing is like, we're like, why are not more people converting? Well, it says submit. It's not clear what you're getting. They're, they're worried that, you know, your website's secure and all these things. So do you have any examples of that of like, okay, yes, it's a wish. I, I, I get we're coming from there. But then as communicators, how do we set it up so they know to make the right wish or they want to make that wish and they know what's going to come on the other side of that click? Yeah, uh, I think there's two different things. One is um, if, if the, the other cool thing about every, every click is a wish is that you can leave the click alone. In, in some sense. So let's say, for example, you want someone to fill out a form. What is the promise that we're giving them to fill out the form? I mean, it, it, you know, I see a lot of download our white paper, which is compelling. And that's actually what you're going to do is download the white paper. But, you know, the better ones are, uh, you know, deliver Q4 results or <laughs> something that's more aspirational. And then that aspiration, you try to tap into their desire. You know, and I suppose it's a little similar to how we opened up, right? Which is that, they may not be looking for a download of white paper, but they're really looking to increase their customer's experience or, you know, like uh, increase efficiency of their sales team or something like that. Like that's a thing that they really want. You're an instrument to get them to do that. So make sure that when we're promising them something, it's not download our white paper, it's make your team more efficient or, you know, something that's <laughs> better written and more compelling than that. The other thing, and this is the thing that always, I always think of, I hear Joel's voice in my head whenever this happens. If I do that, I click a submit button and it's, a, you know, it comes back with a blank page that's, you know, form successfully captured. <laughs> it's a reward. Um, and even though you've already gotten it, and that's the whole thing is like, if all you're really focused on is the conversion, I just got to get that email address. You put all your effort into that. And then you're like, well, just give them the standard thank you page that comes with WordPress or whatever it might be. If you say every click is a wish, when you make that wish, you need magic. You need something to respond back. And so we would throw little bits of creativity in there, little bits of just like a surprising, you know, beautiful execution or a sound or, you know, game designers are so good at this, right? It's that, is that that action, especially if it's the first action, sets the tone of all the rest of the actions, all the rest of the interactions that the consumer is going to take with the brand. If it's simple, but wonderful, they're going to want another one. And then you can start merchandising the rest of the stuff that you're doing. So if it's if that click is a wish, get the data, send them the white paper, but make that experience extraordinary in some memorable, compelling way. Do something magic in that moment because it's wish.
I like that. I mean, one one way I like to think of things is every touch point is a thing of value, right? And I think that's what there you're saying you too. Like that was Absolutely. a touch. That, that's a thing of value. That's an opportunity we have to either exceed their expectations or fall below yeah. their expectations. And they're going to judge us based on it and make, uh, you know, and then that's going to how they're going to look at us for every other possible thing we can do, right? For that first small thing, right? Especially like totally. download a white paper. Boy, if that's not fantastic, how are they going to spend like six figures on our enterprise software, right? Right. And, you know, and when we, 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 we chase after touch points, we're, we're, they're, they're scarce. These moments when the consumer is paying attention to us and on the brands. Why would we waste any of them? Any of them, no matter what it is, make it awesome, make it great. Don't get in people's way, but just make sure that that is great. And maybe just great as like, hey, it's super simple and I know where to download the form. Cool, easy. But every touch point needs to be looked at and interrogated. This is the core of human-centered design or creating great customer experiences is that we look at a journey and we say, you know, first of all, how can we remove the friction from it? Second is um, where is the worst point and that's where we want to put our effort in. And then once we've achieved something that's good, come up with a signature move. Do one thing that's spectacular. Uh, you know, we're all sort of obsessed actually at the company with that unreasonable hospitality book. I don't know if, uh, if uh, you know, it's, it's a, uh, I can't think of how to say his Ritz, last Is name. it the Ritz Carlton um, one or? No, it's not the Ritz Carlton. He did um, 11 Madison Park. I'm kind of forgetting the name of the restaurant. Anyway, um, and, and, and it was featured in that TV show, The Bear. <laughs> like it was a really key scene where the guy's reading it. And, and he'll talk about that. And it's just like, yeah, we have to deliver what people need. They go to a nice restaurant they want good food and clean plates and, you know, good service and a wine that matches the steak and et cetera. And also a spectacular moment, something that, um, and I, I, I think that's this whole notion of like delivering the expected unexpectedly. That's part of customer experience. And those are the kinds of things where if you embrace every click as a wish, you start looking for those and you get like ravenous about them. You know, sometimes we talk about like, what's your signature move? And like, the one thing, because that's what gets talked, gets talked about. It's like, oh my God, I had a really wonderful dinner and the wine and was really, and then they brought this dessert because they overheard that it's my anniversary or something like that, right? I didn't tell them that, but it just happens. Those are the things that we look for. Uh, and those are the things that really start to matter. And, and again, it's like, you know, click, it's like locked in sort of the internet, sort of computer world. But like, if you take clicking to say like every, everything that it's like they're wishing for something to happen and it's so satisfying when it actually comes through. Absolutely. I also going to take a look at one more lesson here. Uh, think yeah. like a challenger. You said you learned this from Julian Aldridge, the president and GM of Ammo Marketing. How'd you learn this from Julian? Yes. Yeah. Well, Julian, uh, so Julian is, um, and he runs an agency called Enact uh, right now. It kind of pulls this stuff through. And um, <laughs> Julian told me a lot of things. Um, he, uh, 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 he is, uh, he's very much a wild, he's like a free spirit in the marketing, which I, I always really appreciate um, he really embraced the challenger marketing idea. You know, when I was in, for example, eat big fish or embrace your constraints. Um, uh, and he would always bring that mentality to everything that we did. And sometimes we did have real challenger brands, you know, small startups that were trying to take on a big competitor. Sometimes it was a big company um, that was already established. Um, he would always take a moment to get us to think about being a challenger brand. And we, you know, if you do a search on challenger brand, you go to like eat big fish. There's a methodology for doing this. There's some, there's some steps and some structure and some strategy around that. Um, but it did at least one of two things. One is it would spark ideas 
than we wouldn't have normally come up with. He had, he had a really good trick, which I always thought you and every single brainstorm, which is, okay, round, round robin, go around the table, same idea, and then I'll get us fired. It's so crazy, so bad. <laughs> and like, just, you know, let's like really push that because that's what disruptive, you know, uh, challenger brands will do. The other thing is sometimes it would occur to us that if it, like, if it's a big brand, you know, the established player, it would help us think about how that brand could be disrupted. How do we be protective against an upstart? And, you know, you, you pick any company, any industry. I'm sitting here in San Francisco, California. I bet I could walk three blocks in any direction and find four people in a garage who are coming up with a technology that's going to disrupt your industry, <laughs> right? And they're going to come to market in a really compelling, different way. Just, you know, if we assume that position, it will push us to be either a little bit bolder, a little bit more consumer-centric, a little bit more inventive in the way in which we engage with people, um, or just be a bit more informed about what people are looking for. So always thinking like a challenger, either you're going to do a challenger thing, or you know how you might be challenged. And sometimes it comes in really unexpected ways. But then is there things that the leading brand should never do, right? Even if you're trying to think like a challenger. So like, I love that idea. You know, we're Avis, we're number two, we try harder. We always learn just the basics of brand positioning. Hey, Pepsi talks about Coke. Coke doesn't talk about Pepsi, right? So I like this idea. Hey, let's disrupt ourselves. Let's think about what might happen. But what should we do? I mean, if we are that leading brand, should we step back and say, hey, like these are some creative ideas. They're off base for now because again, we don't want to talk about Pepsi. We're Coke. Yeah, I think it goes back to that idea of like always be improving, always be seeking out the biggest idea possible. And and that's the flip side, right? Is that uh, when you're the big leader, and this is why I always thought, you know, I'm I'm generally speaking cool with uh, billboards and Times Square and Super Bowl commercials and you know these sorts of big big moves uh, that brands will make. Uh, that big brands will make because if you're the leader, sometimes it makes sense to do the kind of thing that only a leader could do. Only a leader would do this thing because we're strong and bold. I mean, you know, obviously there's <laughs> marketing is littered with, uh, uh, you know, m- moves that brands thought were challenging, you know, Pepsi's protest, uh, who was it? Uh, was it <laughs> Kendall Jenner? Uh, was you know, it? That, Kendall Jenner. Yeah. I was trying to remember yeah, who it was, yeah. you know, like there's that, right? So, you know, that somehow was, a, was, was clearly a misfire. Um, but if you're in this, if you built a culture around biggest idea possible, you're always looking for that. And you're always trying to increase your confidence to do something bolder. And so you might be bold because this is your shop. You know, I mean, it was a, you know, like the, the, the thing story, the guy from started FedEx couldn't make payroll. So he took his last hundred thousand dollars and put it on red seven on a roulette wheel and it happened to come up. And now we have FedEx, right? You know, those are the kind of crazy risks. You know, but sometimes you're in a position where creatively you have to you, you have the opportunity to do that because you can make that move. Sometimes you're the bigger brand. You can say, well, we're well established and we've got um, enough insight and understanding of our market that we can do something that will continue keeping people engaged with us. They, they want to see leaders lead. And if you're a Coke, uh, just as a, you know, I'm the insight on them necessarily, they want to see Coke do something um, you know, they did this really beautiful ad. This is now 10 years ago with the Happiness Factory, right? This really wonderfully rich ad where, you know, you put a quarter into a machine and what happens at a cook machine? I think it was a Lyman Kennedy spot. I'm pretty sure it was. And it was rich and organized. And, and you know, it didn't say anything about the product. But it was just beautiful. And it was compelling. Um, 
you know, Apple now, uh, maybe it's in other cities in San Francisco, uh, has these big billboards, these beautiful, gigantic portraits of babies. Okay. Apple can do that because they're Apple, right? And, and you know, a smaller company wouldn't necessarily have the ability to do that because, uh, you know, maybe they need to communicate features or whatever. But it's like, we want to see leaders lead. And, and when leaders do that, we're impressed by it freshly. Absolutely. Well, Gary, we talked about so many different things about what it means to be a marketer. If you have to break it down, what are the yeah. key qualities of an effective marketer? Um, I, uh, I think the key, so I think that there's a really good, this is what has always kept me in marketing. Um, it's this idea that we have to firmly believe that art can solve business problems. And it's a really weird idea and it doesn't even seem to make any sense, but we do believe it. If you need more market share, if you need uh, whatever, like a, a true business problem. And I see a lot of things that are out there, a lot of people uh, and, and whatever, like that, that either believe one or the other. They either want to make art or they want to do business problems, right? And there's a very few people who believe you can blend both of those together. And you have to keep on maintaining that, you know, there, you know, we, we, there's a debate that always happens like, Oh, it's, you know, the business side is killing the creative or the creative side doesn't pay attention to the business. And that's such a, um, that's such a, such a, such a stagnating idea. It only really works. It's only advertising. It's only marketing. If it's, if it's both and finding both is so elusive that, you, a good marketer is 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 addicted to the chase, and so one of the things I, I've actually I've, I've had an opportunity. I really enjoy doing this and mentoring with people, you know, through the four A's or through various programs. And um, whenever I always wrap it up, uh, and, and I say this, if, if nothing else, you take nothing else away, advertising or marketing, but but in general, there, it has to have the three M's. And I don't think we're doing visuals, but I'm holding up my three fingers and it makes an M. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and it has to be meaningful, memorable, and motivating. Meaning, okay, so meaningful, it has to communicate something about the product or the brand or whatever it might be. It has to be memorable. It has to have something that just solidifies in your brain, in the consumer's brain that they can recall. And motivating it has to get them to take an action or believe something. If it doesn't have all three of those things, it's not marketable. It's something else. It, it, it might be beautiful. It might be funny. It might be cool. It might be whatever. <laughs> but the only way it's marketing is if it has all three of those things. So the cool thing about marketing is that people come to it from all different paths. You know, like I said, I studied books. <laughs> um, if you get to a point where you're obsessed on finding the intersection of those three things, that's a good market. All right, we got the four P's and we got the three M's. Did, did you come up with that? I've never heard that before. Is that yours? I did come up with it. I did come up with the three M's. I I, I was I don't know. I was probably sitting in a bar one night drinking drinking bourbon and came up with three M's. I don't know something like that. But yeah, it's a, but yeah, that is a that's a that's a that's a me. <laughs> that well, you heard it here first, folks. Well, there you go. Uh, <laughs> well, I really like that, Gary. Art can solve business problems. So thank you so much for sharing your art with us today, your your career as an artist solving business problems. Thank you so much. Well, it was really nice to make a connection with you. Um, and I really appreciate the opportunity to share what's on my mind with you and your audience. And thank you all to you for listening.
Thank you for joining us for How I Made It in Marketing with Daniel Burstein. Now that you've gotten inspiration for transforming yourself as a marketer, get some ideas for your next marketing campaign from Marketing Sherpa's extensive library of free case studies at marketingsherpa.com. That's marketing, S-H-E-R-P-A.com. Thank you.